Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. sorry. I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think they're a concept or I complete them or I'm going to make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we talk about how men suck, women are awesome, and, you know, there's a lot of that going on these days. There's a couple of men that are all right, and we'll let them slide. But, you know, for the most part, women rule, and we should be in charge of everything. I am Karen Peterson, joined as always by Lauren Humphreys Brooks. Hello. And today we are so excited to have a very special guest, Fritzy Kramer. Hi. How are you, Fritzy? I'm doing pretty good. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Why don't you tell folks a little bit about who you are and what you do? So I've been running Movie Silently for over 10 years. It's a website dedicated to silent film. I'm on Twitter, starting fights, and I uh, I pretty much just want to spread the love of silent film. I've crowdfunded the release of some some rare material, and I've helped to... Uh, recreate title cards on a lost silent film so i'm kind of in all areas poking and prodding and trying to get a little bit more love and respect for this lost art and that is so exciting to hear and that's exactly why we wanted you to join us for an episode um because there's so much about silent film that people get wrong and we're going to get into all of that in a bit um so but anyway we're really happy to have you here thank you so yeah, we're going to be talking today about silent films. Before we get to that, um, I did want us to say um, Joel Schumacher passed away this week, and uh, it was interesting seeing the conversation unfold, and I made my confession that I've always loved Batman and Robin for that weirdness that it is. <laughs> and a whole lot of people agreed with me, and I was like, where have you people been? <laughs> So there were a lot of us that were loving it silently, but um, anyway, but yeah, so Joel Schumacher made a lot of really interesting, some really good, some really not good movies, but he consistently entertained me and he will be missed. I, I was going to say, I think that that's part of his, his charm is that some of his films are, some of his films are terrible. <laughs> like, and I'm not going to say that Batman and Robin is a good Mm-mm. film, Oh, but no, it it's definitely, definitely not. <laughs> it is definitely an entertaining film. And, and I, I remember going to see it, uh, I don't what year did that come out? That must have been late 90s, early aughts, somewhere around there. Yeah. Um, and I remember going to see it in the movie theater. And it was like, and I I loved it. Like, I actually really enjoyed it. And then I remember the reviews coming out. And I was like, this sucks. <laughs> it was like. It's silly, isn't that what like it's a comic book? Isn't that what comic book movies are supposed to be? Silly, like yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And Bat- Batman Forever is still like my go-to Batman movie. I love Batman Forever. Uh, yes, again, it's silly, but it's fun, silly. Mm-hmm. And uh, and a couple of people mentioned how there's a lot of relationship to um, at least Schumacher's style and Birds of Prey. 
And I was like, yeah, there's definitely a continuum there. It's that kind of, it's that the neon colors and, um, and sort of the, the indulgence a little bit in the insanity, you know, it's not the grim dark stuff that we've gotten used to. I like that. Exactly. How about you, Fritzy? Did you have any thoughts on Batman and Robin or the work of (laughs) Joel Schumacher? (laughs) Um, well, I have to say with Batman forever, um, my memory is little tweenage me stuck in the theater because I couldn't drive, wanting desperately to leave. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. I'm afraid so. I, I, I like um, my, my favorite Batman is still Batman Returns. I am a huge Catwoman fangirl. I absolutely love that movie. So that, that's my that's my favorite. I, I, yeah. I mean, I think that Batman Returns is probably the best Batman, like just just in in terms of the quality of the film and the quality of the story and just sort of the the craziness of it. And it's it's a very well realized Batman movie. But I, I do have like a warm feeling about Batman Forever, partially because it was the first Batman movie I could watch that didn't just scare the shit out of me. Ah. And Batman Returns, the first time I saw it, I was way too young for it. Yeah. And. And I watched it, and and the Penguin especially just terrified me. Uh, And so I saw Batman Forever. I was like, oh, this is kind of, this is more my speed as Mm -hmm. however old I was a small child. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's the beauty of something that's covered as often as Batman. I mean, you know, yes, we can get tired of it sometimes, but you also have this great thing where there's a flavor for anyone. You know, whatever, however you want it. If you want goofy Batman, you want serious Batman, whatever you want, there's a Batman for you. Yeah, that's so true. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, anyway, thank you, Joel Schumacher, for a very entertaining collection of films. <laughs> um, another piece of news that just came out yesterday that I wanted to mention briefly was that Warner Brothers has delayed the release of Tenet. And I bring that up because I sim- simply just want to say, ha 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 ha! Oh, this makes <laughs> me so happy. <laughs> I just like laughing at all the boys who are so upset about this. Like, there's a global pandemic. There are more important things to worry about than seeing Christopher Nolan's movie. Do you think it will be released this year? Because I'm almost thinking it won't be. I'm not sure. I I think that Warner Brothers really does want to have... They're kind of in this neck-and-neck competition with Disney to try to be the first studio back with a big movie. But... I think that it's not, we're not going to have a blockbuster until next spring at the earliest because mm-hmm. the world's just not ready for that. So I, I could see, I could see the possibility of them delaying it, especially because of the fact that Christopher Nolan is so insistent that this not be released straight to streaming, that this has to be seen on a big screen. That's very much how he just looks at his films. He doesn't understand that most people will experience this movie on a small screen. Um, but yeah, so I, I could see them eventually giving up and pushing it back to next summer. Yeah. It seems like it would be the responsible thing to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. there, there's been so much like, you know, most states have not controlled the pandemic at, at any level, right? There are, and there are a whole bunch that have controlled it but it's sort of leveled it out basically and there are a couple that have like managed to reduce it but i'm not going back to a movie theater anytime soon i mean that's just not a priority for me if i felt safe enough to do that you know i would have 
gone upstate to visit my parents by now or seen some of my friends, stuff like that. Like, go sitting in a movie theater to, in order to experience Christopher Nolan's vision is just not something I am willing to do. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's not a priority right now. There are a lot of other things I would much rather worry about. Like you say, I would much rather just spend time with friends that I haven't gotten to see. Go hug my mother, <laughs> you know? <it's>... Yeah. <laughs> Tenet it looks really weird, and I'm sure it will be entertaining, but that's not high on my list of things I need right now. Yeah. So. All right. Yeah. So, um, we are really excited, Fritzy, to have you here and talk about silent film. Um, as I was mentioning before we started, this is an area, well, there's a lot of areas of film that I don't feel like I'm very fluent in. Um, I have seen a lot of silent films and I've read some interesting articles and things about, about the era, but I am in no way anywhere close to feeling like I'm an expert on this. And you definitely are. I've learned so much just from seeing some of your, your Twitter threads and things and then reading some more of your work. But, um, yeah, so thank you so much for joining us today to talk about this. And I guess to start off, what would you say is one of the biggest, um, myths or misconceptions that people have about silent film? I would say it's probably what a silent film is, because if someone who's never seen a silent film is asked to describe one, they'll say, oh, it's black and white. And there's a guy with a mustache and a top hat tying a girl to the train tracks. And there's like ragtime honky tonk piano playing in the background. And that's a silent movie. And I think that's the problem because silent films were actually the majority were in had some form of color. Uh, the music could be up to full orchestras. And when people were tied to the train tracks, if it, if it was a comedy spoofing older melodramas, yes, they'd tie a woman to the tracks, but it was very rare. And with that sort of melodramatic trope, quite often the victim was a man rescued by a woman. Really? Yes. Yes. Um, like Blue Jeans, which is like the original sawmill scene, had a man tied to the sawmill or unconscious on the sawmill and had to be rescued by a woman. And that scene is actually visually referenced in uh, The Latest Little Women. Oh, and, my goodness. Yeah. The play they see in the theater, they the guy is, is tied to the sawmill. Um, that's that's visually referencing Blue Jeans. And then uh, the original... Um, tied to the train tracks trope from Vic, from Gilded Age Theater. That was, again, a man tied to the tracks and rescued by a woman. And I actually just saw two movies in a row with a guy tied to a sawmill, one rescued by his dog and the other rescued by both leading ladies. So, and one was from 1912 and one was from like 1926, 27. So it shows you that, you know, it's not what you think. They're very... Uh, there were very empowered women and not just in the sense of they had good characters and good roles, but also they took part in the action. Well, so, so where do you think that, that this, I mean, well, where does this stereotype come from? Um, that, that we, because we have, we do have this vision and, and I think that we all like can think of very often. The first thing that I thought of was, you know, snidely whiplash. So you're talking about cartoons and stuff like that, that, but it's, it's that sort of stereotype, like you're saying of, of these women being tied to the train tracks and the hero rides in and saves them right before the train hits them, things like that. So if that really wasn't particularly a trope, 
um, in the same way in, in most silent films. Why, why did that, why did, did that like color our perceptions of them? Well, I think it was a, it was two things. First is that um, Max Sennett did a lot of re-releasing of his silent comedies and they did have those tropes in it. Like um, Barney Oldfield's race for a life had Mabel Normand being menaced humorously by Ford Sterling and chained to the tracks. And Teddy at the throttle had Gloria Swanson chained to the tracks. Although she did rescue herself, I would like to point out. Um, but, so people would see these comedies and I think they made the assumption that they had to be spoofing something in the silent era without realizing that they were actually spoofing these old tropes that amused granny. And the other thing, <laughs> the other thing that I think is the cause of it is the code, because without a doubt, the number one top most popular trope in silent film and content warning here, um, is sexual assault, the threat of sexual assault. And so that wasn't allowed under the code. So they had to come up with some way of communicating these scenes of peril in old movies without doing what would have really been done, um, which is, you know, the leading lady trying to fight off her attacker while the hero races to the rescue. And because, you know, when I say that there are a lot of empowered heroines, that's not saying there weren't any damsels, just that the way they frame the damsel is incorrect. Um, so, you know, when you're dealing with that sort of thing, it's easier to do the train tracks because it's easy to communicate. It's easy to show the danger. It seems old fashioned and old timey and people telescope time anyway. You know, basically it's like 1860s, 1910s, same difference. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. and it's just, it's a very visually powerful image and it's also still actually a threat. There was a guy in France who did it to his, his significant other like four or five years ago. So, I mean, it, it actually does happen. It, it is actually dangerous. So it's, it's effective for suspense, but it's so um, it's seen as so corny nowadays that it's not really useful for as a serious trope. So that's another thing. It kind of conveys contempt for silent films. Mm -hmm. You know, they're so old fashioned. They think that this is suspenseful. Ha. Huh you know so i think that's another aspect of it and that's why i find this myth to be so particularly irritating because it's portraying silent films as creaky and silly and you can't take them seriously and the women didn't do anything and it was all up to the man and the villain is a cartoon you know and that's true in a senate spoof but a senate spoof is not all silent films yeah, it's a, it's a spoof. It's quite, it's intended to be funny and silly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they are funny. Yeah, like, there's there's so many myths that we have and stereotypes that we have, and you, you listed a few. Like, so yeah, the damsel in, dis in distress. What about color? You have said, you've taught me so much about the fact that silent films were not black and white, a lot of them. So where did that can you talk a little bit about where that happened and how we've kind of lost the the history of color films? Oh, so most silent films had some form of color, usually tinting, but sometimes each individual frame was hand colored. And the problem is when a lot of archives went to copy the films to safety film, the safety films either because it wasn't available to them, color or safety film wasn't available to them, or they simply didn't want to spend that extra little bit of money, uh, they transferred them to black and white film. 
And also sometimes for redistribution, like for television and things, they would be on black and white film. So, and also for, um, I don't want to get myself into too much trouble here because this is not my area of expertise, but I know that the colors were not necessarily transferred over when they were transferring them for like 9.5 millimeter or 16 millimeter release for like homes and civic civic screenings and things like that. So basically the long story short is that they were in color, they were copied to black and white. And if they didn't have a record of the original tinting scheme, that's entirely lost. Well, and so, I mean, I know that some silent films were also um, hand, like literally hand colored. And I know that that was slightly more, not as usual, particularly in longer films, but um, particularly in the, in the really early period that they were at, that they would do things like, you know, coloring in certain elements in order to draw attention to them, but literally you know, physically coloring them in on the frame. Yeah. Uh, and, and that that eventually, as, as would be expected, would begin to leach out. And you wouldn't have that same preservations. Although there are definitely some films where those, where that has been restored because I have, and I cannot quote a ne necessarily a, a single film right now, but there's de there, I've definitely seen films where they've tried to restore um, that use of kind of hand hand coloring films. Yeah, and I think uh, I think red particularly tends yeah. tends to bleach out because I've. Um, I've looked at at images of the various colors and it's particularly interesting when some of them had color wheels of available colors because when they were tinting a film you could either tint the stock in in the chemical baths yourself or you could buy tinted film stock ready tinted for you and so they'd have like these sample wheels of the different colors along with a guide to what kind of mood should go with what kind of color and you can see like the reds are completely gone in some cases and sometimes um, the yellows seem to do well, but yeah, so you're right. Fading is definitely an issue. And also um, I think in a lot of cases, people don't realize what they have. They don't realize how rare they are because I know that the colored trip to the moon was in a Spanish archive for just decades and they didn't realize that it had been rare and that the French had been looking for it desperately. So when they casually mentioned, Oh yeah, we have that in color, you know, they caused quite a stir. Wow. Well, well but that's the other thing. So many of these films have, have been lost, just lost. You know, we have some records of them or we've got maybe have a couple of fragments and things like that, but so many of them have just, they were poorly preserved. They weren't preserved at all. No one thought to preserve them. Or they could be just sitting in someone's basement gathering dust and decay uh, and, and ultimately being like, oh, we don't we don't have them. These, these were not films that necessarily a lot of people considered to be important enough to to even try to preserve. Um, and in the time period, you know, it's it's even more difficult. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's something that we talked about a few weeks ago, Lauren, that um, there are just especially in the early days when they're experimenting and, and just even learning what they could do with the medium that they, you know, who keeps their, who keeps their uh, rough drafts? Nobody, you know? So it's just kind of a lot of that stuff got lost. Sorry, Fritzy, what were you going to say? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, And also, well, on what you were saying about rough drafts and things, another thing to remember is that a lot of the early film production companies, Edison in particular, viewed film as a feature with which to sell projected projection equipment. Mm -hmm. 
So he was he was thinking of selling hardware, not software, basically. And so that didn't give him any particular incentive. But ironically, a lot of movies from the early period were preserved in the first case because they were sold outright. They weren't leased. So there would be copies, you know, floating around much more so than if they were leased, you need fewer copies, but also because um, they would simply. Um, oh, sorry, I lost my thought. <clears throat> um, uh, and. So they, they were they were they were kept right. So they they weren't like sent out. Uh, they weren't leased by a particular production company. Right. They would actually be owned by the theater and sold. Um, and so that would mean that the um, so that would mean that you would have copies that wouldn't be in a particular company's vault because mm-hmm. that's what a lot of them were lost due to fire and straight up vandalism. Because when the silent era was over, a bunch of studios were like, ha, can junk our silence, cough, cough, universal. And in 47, they actually went through and destroyed the rest. So, so. (laughs) I'm so horrified. Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm like, you know, so when they destroyed the Phantom of the Opera Theater, I'm like, of course they did. Of course they did. You know. Because they're like, oh, no, that was back in 47. It's different people there now. I'm like, corporate culture is forever. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, it is, it is that attitude of film being at some level ephemeral that no one's going, why Why should we keep these? You know, why Why should we be worried about the preservation of, of history? Because this is this is something that you sell and then you show and people watch it and then they stop watching and, they, and you move on to the next thing. So it's not, it, the logic behind it is really, terrible but also makes a certain degree of sense because that's the way that they were thinking about film and that's in some ways the way that we still think about film we still think about film as being fairly ephemeral and note the way that things just vanish off of streaming and suddenly you're just like wait a minute is there no way to actually hang on to these things isn't this important enough mm-hmm. it's true and like with Disney Plus, when that was launched, they were saying, oh, yeah, our entire catalog of animated features will be available. That wasn't true. Our entire catalog of this or that will be there. And that wasn't true. And this is Disney. Like, they have the movies. They just didn't put them on their streaming platform like they said they would. Well, and that's yeah. one of the things that, that a lot of people are very concerned about. And it's it's an open question with streaming and everything, but the decline of physical media, right? So... Yeah. You're not you're not buying as many Blu-rays. You're not buying as many DVDs. Even if you are, I mean, I remember buying a whole bunch of VHS tapes when I was a kid, <laughs> and my parents still have them in the basement. But it's not like we have anything to play them on, right? But so this, so when you're talking about something like Disney Plus or streaming companies, um, you know, they're talking about releasing Hamilton. Oh, Hamilton is going to be available on Disney Plus. Awesome. But it's only going to be available on Disney Plus. Like, is Disney eventually going to release it on a physical disc, if it's some kind of some kind of physical media download? You know what? So that, but that's that seems to it just stretches back all the way into film history because it's this it's this attitude of film being it's at once the most ubiquitous one of the most ubiquitous art forms, uh, and at the same time, it it also seems to be one of the most ephemeral. Yeah, it's true. Um, Fritzi, for you, I'm just really wondering, where did your passion for silent films start? Well, um, 
I was pretty much raised almost entirely on classic films. Like to me, modern films are weird and like, <laughs> well, I mean, they are, yeah, but yeah, yeah, they are. But I mean, like they feel alien to me. Um, oh. Whereas my comfort zone is classic era films, you know, 30, 40, 40s, 50s. And so I grew up like huge Laurel and Hardy fan, Cary Grant, Humphrey Bogart, the whole thing. And I realized that my knowledge of film history pretty much ended with 1930. So I had watched some documentaries, you know, and seen some clips. And I think we'd even had some Silent Mutt and Jeff cartoons on VHS that were redrawn in the 60s. But I didn't really have any, I didn't know anything. So I went and I... I went to the local blockbuster and I rented a couple of silence on VHS and I ended up being interested enough where I just kept looking and looking and looking. And then it's like, um, I don't know. It's a little bit addictive, like, because at first you're like just silent films. Oh, this is so obscure. Oh my gosh. Rudolph Valentino. Who's ever heard of him? You know, kind of thing. <laughs> and then, and then as you get going, you start to get more into the, into the nerdy stuff and then you're like hmm early Cecil B. DeMille I prefer 1915 Cecil B. DeMille and then and then you get become a real addict and then you're like you know I kind of prefer Finnish silence to Swedish silence and you know and then you're insufferable and you don't have any friends anymore (laughs) (laughs) so so let me get this straight you saw a gap in your film knowledge and you felt you filled it by watching films what a yeah, concept! Shocking. My God. <laughs> no one oh. does that. I, I should have skimmed Wikipedia. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> that gives you everything you need to know about absolutely nothing. Yes. <laughs> oh, I'm still mad at them about their Ivan Mozhukin article. Ah, oh, bothers Ooh, me so much. Let's talk about that. What? <laughs> oh, oh, okay. So, the the first thing I need to know is that. I adore Ivan Mozhukin to death and he's a Russian actor. He was their first superstar and he fled Russia during the revolution. He ended up in France. He made these amazing movies. He's a wonderful actor. He could do everything. He could do love. He could do comedy. He could direct, he could edit, you know? And so the art, he came to America and made one movie, which is terrible. The basic concept being a Cossack falls in love with a Jewish girl. So he threatens to, commit genocide on her village unless she sleeps with him but then he decides maybe he won't and so she's like "Ooh, that's so sexy and so (laughs) it's like oh my because i'm like is that what you thought american audiences wanted like it was universal curse you universal and it was universal because carl lamley was obsessed with this play upon which it was based and he decided that he had to have this play and he had to have mojokin and it was it was terrible. He was terrible in it because what can you do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. so his his Wikipedia article is like, um, they brought Ivan Mozhukin to America to be a Valentino clone after Valentino died, and I'm like, no. First of all, he's a better actor than Valentino. I mean, I love Valentino, but let's face facts. And second, he was signed with Universal before Valentino died, and I have dates. So, huh. yeah, I, I just I know it's a it's a piddly little thing, but they try to make him out like he's throughout the article. They try to make him like he's a uh, European ripoff of of American actors. Right. And it just bothers me so much. It's like not everything is about you. OK, 
Exactly. Well, and I don't think that's a little thing at all. I mean, obviously, a lot of people now don't know who he is and haven't heard of him, but that's part of the problem. Like, we do have this tendency to think everything begins and ends with American people, American actors, American movies, but Mm -hmm. that's there's a whole world out there of really amazing, talented people that (laughs) would run circles around any of us. So, yeah, I don't think that's a small thing at all. Yeah. What were you going to say, Lauren? Well, I was just going to say, you have, you have the, uh, also across, during the silent period, you have these burgeoning film industries across the world. And then they get interrupted um, partially because because of the world wars. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and then the aftermath of those things. So, you know, and, and I know I've, I've been rereading from Caligari to Hitler. So I'm like into, uh, into Germ- early German cinema at the moment. Um, but, but just in, in terms of, you've got these worldwide cinemas and everybody is exporting them to everybody else. And there is a lot of exchange and there is a lot of sort of exchange of techniques and different national cinemas developing across the world. So, you know, the idea that, yeah, it it would make sense to bring a, a Russian actor, um, across to America or something like that. But then in kind of later film history perceptions, because American cinema became so dominant, partially because of, of world events, um, we suddenly look back on the, those kinds of actions and are like, well, this is because, you know, this was a trying to, to get the next Valentino or something like that. We have to sort of push those events into this very, like you're saying, American-centric um, view of, of early film history, as though, uh, as though film history as though film history developed naturally, right? That this was just always going to be the direction the film is going to go is this American centric view. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And I think a lot of that um, is an issue when people are talking about D.W. Griffith, you know, because obviously, you know, people who are racist have a stake in keeping him in the conversation, but also I think, there's this, you know, why we invented cinema, the Americans did, you know, and kind of erasing the British pioneers, the French pioneers, the Italian pioneers, the Australians, and all of these people who did it first, and in many cases better. It's just that you don't get this like eureka moment of one American guy saying, hey, let's make a movie about the KKK and also invent film, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, but I have to say, even in, um, even in film schools and in film classes, that's still kind of one of the prevalent attitudes. And I remember, uh, uh, and this was several years ago, so things may have changed. I hope that things have changed. Um, but I remember in talking about, you know, in film history and early and the development of film and talking about things like continuity editing and stuff like that and cross cutting and everything. And one of the major reference points was always Griffith. Right. And, and it was just this accepted idea that Griffith did this first or if he didn't do it first, he did it best or he did it most influentially. Right. And then if you actually begin to dig a little bit, you're just like, did he, though? I'm not so certain yes. about that. Yes, yes. Well, I ran into that actually the other day because I was reading up on cross-cutting um, as related to – they like this very particular trope in silent film like from like the, the mid-1900s to the early 1910s where um, there was a home invasion robbery and the victim called for help on the telephone and then mm-hmm. someone came to rescue them and they cross-cut between the rescuer and the burglar and the victim. And it's usually – credited griffith is usually credited with cross-cutting and but the thing is is that 
this story, this trope, and the cross-cutting that go with it were all done in France, I think as early as 1905. And that's the earliest we know of. It may have been even earlier. And so I was reading a piece on it, and they're like, oh, yes, yes, they did it earlier. But as you could see, Griffith put the door behind the victims, which increased the suspense. So therefore, his is better. And so that's why that's the default. I'm like, that's ridiculous. Lois Weber did an overhead shot of the burglar, which really created this, you know, um, very, this shocking moment of suspense, you know, the, the, the leading lady, which is her, looks out the window, looks down, and this, the burglar looks up at her, and it's shocking, and it's frightening. And meanwhile, you know, she's calling her husband, he's driving, and they have shots through the rearview mirror of the car. Show, so, like, she has a lot of really exciting technical elements going, so it's much superior to anything Griffith did, so why isn't she the default? Why aren't we saying she perfected it? And that's my problem with how they always talk about Griffith. They make him automatically, like, he is the ideal. And anything that came before is more primitive, but also he invented it. And anything that came after was influenced by him. So therefore, you must only talk about him. And once you realize that's their trick, it kind of makes you question everything. So besides racism and sexism, why do you think they <laughs> default to him? I, I was gonna, I was gonna say it's just like, well, we could ask why, but I think I might know the answer. I don't know. Uh, well, okay, so we'll pretend we'll pretend that there isn't that. I uh -huh. think um, he literally took out a full page ad saying he invented everything. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and, and if it's like, in the paper, it must be true. They're like, I accept that. But also, in all seriousness. Um, Lillian Gish lived forever and constantly was carrying water for him. And a lot of, a lot of film historians had crushes on her. So, you know, it's, I really, um, I mean, she is a, to blame for a lot of it. I think, um, I, I know we're supposed to say down with men, but I'm sorry. I'm, oh no, I, there are women that we talk about this all the time. Yes. Women enable the patriarchy. Yep. They're She's the gatekeepers. The, she was definitely an enabler. And, so she constantly was saying, oh, Mr. Griffith invented this. Mr. Griffith invented that. Mr. Griffith, Mr. Griffith, Mr. Griffith, Mr. Griffith. I'm like, oh, my God, you know. And the thing is, is that she's still very popular. So people, even if they don't like Griffith, will hesitate to say, oh, she was part of the issue. And it's like, look, she was a very fine actress, but she also enabled him and continued his misbuilding after he was dead. Hmm. So... That's, I mean, that's a good point because there's so many of those silent film actors that, that obviously didn't survive, that didn't, that either didn't make the transition, didn't make the transition to sound, that didn't live very long. People like Valentino who died very young, uh, et cetera. And so you do get this small kind of cadre of, of silent film stars who continue to exist and continue to work. And I mean, Lillian Gish, you know, worked in, um, she was in Night of the Hunters. She, she continued to work all the way through the sound period. Uh, and as a result, you're sort of, it's like, okay, well, who's going to, who's going to shape the narrative? Well, the only people left standing, basically. Yes. Yeah. And she's one of the ones who's left standing. And she also has, has at least some degree of an investment in that because she was in so many of his films and was such a major stars in relationship to him. But it's funny. I mean, her best work was after she left him. That's what gets me. Because uh, Griffith had this very distinct way of directing women, which was profoundly strange, where he'd have them do this hippity-skippity, which what they called it back in the time, 
um, this kind of leaping around and acting like a four-year-old who's eaten like a bag of candy and, <laughs> and fluttering and getting excited about birds and bugs and socks. I don't know. <laughs> you know, just like, you know, inanimate objects, kissing things, kissing letters passionately. Just he had this very strange idea of how women acted. And most men do. Let's yeah. be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> but when she was working with someone else, um, like, um, uh, for example, Victor Seastrom, um, you know, he brought out a much more natural performance, still stylized, but, you know, he got in touch with something a lot deeper than Griffith ever did with her. And so I think it's, it's kind of strange that she continued to hitch her wagon to Griffith because quite frankly, she could have unhitched him at any point and, and gone with either the Scarlet Letter or the Wind as her signature film, because both of them have very powerful performances. Yeah, she, she's very adult in the wind. I mean, there is there's very little yeah. of that, even though she's playing in some ways a similar. She is some she at least at the beginning of the film, she is somewhat naive and and um, uh, and kind of a, a girl who's out of place. Right. In this this bizarre windswept tundra, basically. <laughs> but um, but it, it, like even then, her performance is much more naturalistic and is much more. Um, uh, realistic than than as you're saying some of the performances and stuff like Birth of a Nation uh, or some of her other films with Griffith where it's I mean I keep on I'm imagining I when you described that I was like I know exactly what she's talking about <laughs> I know exactly that movement and and again maybe we sort of dismiss it because we're like oh that's silent film that's the way that that's the way that they behave in silent film it's weird we're not quite certain why they're doing it. But it, it, it does actually, in, in many ways, conflict with, with the way that women are represented in other silent films that weren't made by Griffith. And I think that that's, that's definitely a point to note, that this, this is not like a broad-based thing, just like this is just the way that silent film acting is. Um, and you could see that in the career of Lillian Gish. Oh, yeah. yeah, definitely. I mean, well, that's what I, um, that was one point that Kevin Brownlow brought out in the praise gone by is that silent film actors were not only good actors, but they could act in a variety of styles. Like you can see it in some movies, for example, where they, they're movies about movies and they'll be acting out in some very melodramatic manner. And then they'll switch to a more natural manner when their character is no longer making the film. So they, they knew exactly what they were doing and they could appreciate when their character when the audience would want their character to be more melodramatic or when the movie called for a more natural performance. So I think that's another problem is that we have a natural tendency to view history as advancing forward when in mm -hmm. fact, you know, they were very good performers and well, actually when you mention Griffith being what people think of as silent acting, there's a similar issue with Eisenstein where People think that that's how all Soviet film was. It was, you know, very dramatic, very political, very stylized, very over the top. And instead you have something from like um, Boris Barnett, one of his romantic comedies, which have a much more natural style. They're light, they're fun, they're happy. So I think that's another problem with such a limited amount of silent films being discussed is that we tend to compare everything to this tiny, tiny portion of films when in fact 
you know, they may not be the norm and they may have been an extreme on some level or another, but you're not going to realize that unless you watch more of them. Well, and one of the things that I've, that I've argued, and I've argued this in, in terms of, and a lot of people have argued this, I'm not saying that I'm the only one, um, but it, I've argued this in terms of German cinema, uh, it is that so much of what we watch of, of the can the issue of the canon, right? Mm-hmm. And so much of what we watch are only, as you're saying, are only particular slices of national cinemas or of Hollywood cinema. Um, so we watch because we're talking about, you know, the influence of, uh, of Eisenstein. So we watch Soviet montage. We're going to talk about Soviet montage, and that's really all that we're going to talk about. So Russian cinema looks like Eisenstein. That's it, right? And Or when we turn to something like German cinema, we're talking about it. All of German cinema looks looks like Metropolis, right? And that is it. But when you actually look at the number of films that were being produced in those time periods, you know, you're, you're talking about, yes, you have the big historical epics. Yes, you have the big art films, et cetera. But you've also got the musicals and the comedies and the, the dramas and the serials and all of that. And they did look different. They did feel different. And uh, in a lot of ways, they had closer relationships to some of the genre films that were being made in the same period in Hollywood or in France or in, you know, Russia or in Finland or anywhere else. But we tend to talk about this very small slice of them as the canon. And then that is, that becomes the way that that in terms of popular culture, other people perceive silent film. It's true. And like you mentioned Germany and that's actually one of my big uh, wish things on my wish list is more German trash because I want to know what the average German went to because the average German who just wanted a night out at the movies wasn't going to say, Hey, let's see Caligari for the 40th time because it's the only movie that exists, you know? (laughs) And I just saw the beggar of Cologne cathedral, which is an absolutely wonderful little crime pot boiler from 1927. And it's fantastic. It's fun. It has absolutely no artistic value, probably, and that's <laughs> fine. It's just, it's insane. They have, um, you know, an Interpol agent trying to find a, an international gang, and then one of the henchmen literally eats a table to demonstrate his strength. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, rips it apart and is gnawing on the wood. It's fantastic. <laughs> I loved it. And awesome. I'm like, more of this, please. <laughs> yeah. That sounds really fun. I need to see that now. (laughs) Highly recommended. Highly recommended. Well, what are some uh, underseen or under-discussed films from the silent era that would be a good place for people to start? Well, you know, I've had a lot of people really fall in love with uh, Judex, which is a French crime serial. Yeah. It's like proto-superhero. Proto-superhero. It was remade in the 60s, but... But I thought Marvel invented superheroes. Why, yes, of course. Darn it, I forgot. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, he has a cape, he has a secret lair, he has a camera, but he also has his mother. I love that French pulp heroes always, like, involve their mothers (laughs) in an active role. (laughs) I'm like, this is so healthy. I love this. You know, instead of the dead parent, he's like, okay, mom, what do I do next? And she'll give his advice or, you know... In in Les Vampires, uh, the mother, the hero's mother actually like poisons her guard and escapes when she's kidnapped. I, you know, fr- French fr- pulp moms are fantastic. <laughs> but but I also 
there's one called The Cameraman's Revenge, which is a stop-motion animated Russian film from 1912. Um, it's a tale of adultery and, uh, like, revenge nudes, and but it's an entirely a cast of dead bugs. And so... Uh, what? Yeah. <laughs> it's dead bugs. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he has, like, um, a beetle. He's having an affair with a dragonfly, and her boyfriend's <laughs> a grasshopper who also works at a movie theater as a projector, so he takes images of them canoodling and projects them on the screen in front of the beetle and his wife, who's also having an affair. And <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful stuff. And also Princess Nicotine, which is a little trick film from 1908 about a pyromaniac fairy who hides in a cigar box, and when she gets disturbed, she tries to burn the house down. <laughs> it's just, there's just, I like to get people kind of confused with weird stuff. Is these sound amazing? <laughs> oh yeah, they're wonderful. <laughs> you know, and <laughs> and just like I, I don't know. I, and then there are smaller films, like for example, The Wishing Ring, which is just this adorable, sweet little comedy that's set in uh, set in rural England. It's shot in Fort Lee, New Jersey, I think, and and it's from 1914. It's a feature film. It has no racism, no white supremacy, you know, and it just is this cute, sweet, little whimsical movie that relies entirely on the the charms of its leading cast. And that's so refreshing. And so, you know, you have these extremes, you know, you can have these eccentric, insane films. You can have these sweet films that just sort of wrap you up in a blanket. And mm -hmm. I don't think, you know, if you only watch like four or five films and most of them are either slapstick or, you know, hardcore art films. That's what everyone misses is this kind of wonderful, you know, variety. Like there's literally something for everyone. And no matter what you like in modern films, I can find a silent that will, you know, probably work for you. Yeah. What were you going to say, Lauren? I was going to say, I think that we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. That's just like our, our great, great grandparents were weird. Yeah, like yes. there was a lot of weird <laughs> shit that went down and, and we, and, and again, you know, go, going back to the whole thing of the canon, I think that that's the, one of the reasons why we're sort of like, Oh no, it's all art. Like, like you're saying, it's either art films or slapstick. There isn't anything else. Um, <laughs> and, and some of that, you know, I, I do have to say people like Buster Keaton and, and uh, Charlie Chaplin said that they're entertaining. Um, but there, there does seem to be, there's much broader spectrum of things. And also our grand our great great grandparents were weird. They were just weird. There is some weird shit that goes down in those movies. <laughs> and it's like, why is a pig dancing? I don't understand. <laughs> uh, I don't, they didn't understand either, which is part of what's so wonderful. They're just like, hey, let's do it, you know? <laughs> why uh, not? Yeah. So and the original TikTok. Like, <laughs> like, yeah. And I think I think that's part of what's so exciting about particularly pre nineteen twenty cinema because they hadn't established the studio systems yet. So it was like, or they were in the process of establishing them at that point. But so it was like, Hey, um, so I want to make a movie about an opera star who loses his voice because a hypnotist, you know, hypnotizes him from afar. So then he becomes a silent film star and it, you know, and that's actually the plot <laughs> of the stolen voice. And so, huh. you know, it's just like this very innovative and creative and quite insane, um, you know, it's basically there's no front office. There's no one telling them what to do in many cases. And you can see that also in Cecil B. DeMille's 
studio, his own personal studio. He actually let his writing staff go wild, and most of them were women. So you have these incredibly um, woman-centric films from that era, like in The Cruise of the Jasper Bee, um, uh, Rod LaRock spent the whole movie wearing just a towel, a very small towel. (laughs) And like the women there's a group of women in his house trying to buy it because it's been put up for auction because of his debts. And they're like chasing him around, trying to catch a peak <laughs> throughout the entire movie. And you're, you don't usually see a male character in that kind frame that way in older entertainment. We're not used to that. We're used to seeing a woman. Like if it were a woman, right. it would be the most common thing in the world. And like the fighting Eagle is a swashbuckler in which the women do all the thinking and, they don't have to give up their swashbuckling ways in order to get the man in the end. So, you know, you find all these fascinating little pockets where the the system didn't have people under control. And to me, those are the most exciting parts, you know, and, and for example, like the, the African-American studios, like Oscar Micheaux's where he, he addressed topics that nobody would address again for, you know, years and years. And that's one of those things where it's really exciting to find these films and to learn about them, but it's also really frustrating because you think, man, we could have been so much farther in uh, in equality, civil rights, so many things if back in the 1920s these people hadn't been buried and their careers hadn't been shoved aside to make room for white men. Well, that's the issue with the women directors, you know. It's like... Yeah computer programming the minute it became in any way prestigious you know it was like ah get out of here sister you know yep. and yeah. uh, you know but like I like to tell people for example Lois Weber um, Germaine Dulac and I apologize in advance Olga Priobrazhenskaya um, <laughs> they sounds right to me <laughs> yeah we'll go with it <laughs> they made movies that like you don't have to say, oh, I just like it because it's a woman directing or, you know, you don't have to apologize. You don't have to say it's for historical purposes. These are genuinely brilliant films that are as good as anything anyone was making and sometimes better, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so. Lauren, did we lose you? No, I'm here. Oh, okay. I'm here. I'm listening. <laughs> okay. Um, well, we did get a couple of questions from listeners, so I wanted to kind of toss these your way, Fritzy, if you don't mind. Um, sure. One of them is from at BC Wallen, and he's, he just says, Keaton versus Lloyd versus Chaplin versus the unknown gag filmmaker that probably exists but was never popular enough in the mainstream. <laughs> I think more accurately uh, was <laughs> erased by Hollywood historians, but <laughs> anyway. Um, well, I do love Chaplin. But I'm, I'm going to say that I think framing things as the big three or the big four of comedy um, is not always what I prefer because there was so much good comedy. And I know I said we shouldn't focus entirely on comedy, but, you know, there are so many funny women like Marion Davies is my favorite comedian of just about any era. She's so funny. I, I, I can't breathe when she really gets going. She I'm laughing so hard, <laughs> you know, and I just saw Edith Story, who was one of the top stars of the 19-teens, and I had never seen a whole one of her movies before. I finally got to see one, and I laughed my head off. She was so funny. And 
Hal Roach, the whole Hal Roach stable, where you have Laurel and Hardy, you have Charlie Chase, but then you also have uh, um, Anita Garvin, who was hysterical. So, like, I mean, I understand a lot of people love Keaton, but I've seen a lot of cases where people watch only Keaton, and that's okay, but just understand that it's going to limit your perspective on the silent era in, in general. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that, I mean, so much of, of what we've been talking about is, is that thing that, that they're there. So they're the big ones, right. And they're the big ones that we have talked about ad infinitum for years, right. Ever, ever, ever since the 1930s almost. And then, and then it becomes, it, it turns into the sense that the, well, they're the only ones. They're the only important ones. And as you're saying, very often that winds up erasing um, and forgetting about uh, female comedians, particularly um, not not white men. (laughs) That general that general category of everybody else. but, but yeah, I, I, do, I do have to say, I, I love Keaton. One of the reasons that, why I love Keaton is because he was sort of my first introduction into silent film comedy, as I think he is a lot of people's. It's sort of either Chaplin or Keaton. Um, and and I just enjoy, I enjoy his acrobatics and everything. But I am kind of angry that that pretty much for a very long time, the only, the only silent film comedians that I was particularly aware of were basically Chaplin, Lloyd, and Keaton, and that was it. And I was like, okay, well, those are the only important ones. It's like, well, wait a minute, there, there's a whole bunch more that we just don't talk about that much and that don't come up that much. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like we talk about these old, you know, the Nickelodeons and things where there was a lot of, of uh, you know, films being shown shorts and things but we don't ever talk about the fact that there were a lot of movies being made. I mean, we're starting to talk about this more now, but just in general, there was just kind of this weird idea that films were few and far between and that there were just a few people that mattered and a few filmmakers that mattered. And as we've been learning, this is definitely not the case. There's a whole, like I just said, there's a whole world out there of films. And um, it's been really interesting, like, having the criterion channel has really helped it's there's so many things that are not even there that i've been finding through like youtube and stuff but um but there's so many so many so much access now to films and it's been really interesting to discover these people that no one ever talked about and and yeah like you said lauren it's it's been maddening to (laughs) to see and like so frustrating to be like, wait a minute, it wasn't just Keaton making movies? What? <laughs> it honestly, it makes me kind of mad as a film lover. <laughs> because uh-huh. at this point, I'm like, wait a minute, there's all of this stuff that I haven't seen? How dare you? Why did no one tell me? How dare you, people? Why are you keeping this didn't... from us? Yeah, yeah, I don't know who didn't tell me, but you definitely did not inform me of this. And and it is. And, and it also means that we we ignored people that, that were instrumental in the development of cinema and, mm-hmm. and we're just entertaining to watch. Like you're saying, you know, things that are not necessarily quote quotation marks, important films, but that are fun to watch and that are, are give a much broader scope of what film was capable of, not just in you know 2020, but what film was capable of in 1910. Yeah. Um, okay, so we got another question, too. This is from at Nick Beeman. 
If you could program a silent film festival, would you give it a theme or just go with your faves or those you consider an absolute must-see? I would probably go with the ones that I think could most benefit from big screen viewing and live music. For example, I watched the Michael Curtiz, the 1922 Michael Curtiz film Sodom and Gomorrah, which, um, yeah, there's a lot going on. But um, it had a cast. The um, the modest estimates are that the cast was 15,000. And wow. it's not very popular. I'm pretty much the only person on the planet who liked it. And, <laughs> but I, I really liked it. And I mean, because it, it, they made a lot of bows to censorship, as you can well imagine. And, Mm -hmm. but there's, and the orgies are shockingly mild, but, (laughs) (laughs) but you still get this effect of 15,000 Austrians. Right. And I think it could really benefit from being shown on the big screen with, you know, fancy music and, you know, by fancy, I mean, at least at least a six piece chamber orchestra. And um, another one I'd love to see on the big screen is Michael Strogoff, which is my favorite silent film. And it's epic. They literally rented Latvia, like the whole country. They're like, we're hiring your army. We're hiring your country. We're hiring the whole thing. Thank you. You know, (laughs) and it's huge. It's when it's wonderful. It has uh, a stencil color sequence where everything was colored in with stencils. And it, it, it has a very healthy relationship between the leads. Like their romance is based on caring for each other and helping each other out. Shocking. I know. (laughs) And I just really enjoy it. And I would love to see that on the big screen, especially with some really rousing music. And um, I'd probably fill it out, frankly, with some Jean Duran shorts because He's another one. He's his comedy direction is is excellent and it's really ignored. Um, he did the Onassim series in in France. One of them is Onassim clones himself, and then the clone is really annoying, so he dismembers him. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, so like I said, I, I go. I tend to go for the shock value um, mm-hmm. with early silence. So that's what I would probably do is go with what I think really deserves a big screen presentation. I love that. I personally would probably do one that was all films by women, but I would market it in such a way that you didn't know that so that men would still show up. Sneaky. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Lauren? Uh, I think I would kind of copy you. Um, <laughs> y- yeah, but like, like trying to actually show those films, again, that, that aren't talked about very much and that are... Um, you know, we don't, I love the movie, but we don't really need to see Metropolis for the 5,000th time. Like, we just, it's just not something that needs to be done because everybody knows it. And, and it is a spectacular film, but it's it's not a, um, there are other spectacular films. I would honestly really like to see the, the original silent Ben-Hur on a big screen mm-hmm. uh, for, for much of the same reason that you were talking about, Fritzy, because, like, that would just be spectacular. <laughs> Uh, and, and also slightly, slightly terrifying. Also, I, I love, I think it's, I'm trying, I am not 100% certain, but it might be an Edison film. Um, the, the version of Goldilocks and the Three Bears, which has still scarred me for life. 
and I I want to force other people to watch it and not warn them about it so that they can experience it and then be like, oh my god, what the fuck? Uh, as I did when I first saw it, so definitely that. <laughs> nice, yeah. So, um... Well, just kind of to wrap up this discussion, where are some places that you recommend people go to find some of these films, some silent films that that they haven't had exposure to? Well, the National Film Preservation Foundation has an online screening room that's free and oh. very high quality transfers, and most of them have music too. So... That's a really good free resource if you wanted to experiment. And it's just random cool stuff from archives around the world. Like Princess Nicotine is on there if you wanted to see it there. And uh, and then there's a... If you wanted to see some French films, um, the Cinémathèque Française has launched its own streaming service called Henri. And it has some stuff... They don't have French... They don't have English subs, but there are actually some American movies on there, too, that just happen to be in their collection. So if you don't speak French, you know, there are still options for you. And, like, the streaming services like Netflix, the Criterion Channel, they do have some silence. So I'm not going to say that there's nothing, but it is very difficult to find silence online. So... But I, I will say that with COVID, one of the few good things to come out of COVID is that a lot of silent film people that were previously showing things on the big screen are now live streaming and making these rare films available with quality musical scores that those of us who don't live in, near a big metropolitan center would never have access to. The Kennington Bioscope just screened uh, the release of Kidnap that I produced and they had wonderful professional scores and short films to go with it. Ben Modell has been hosting a silent comedy watch party every Sunday. Neil Brand uh, mentioned that his score to a Soviet film has been streamed by the Film Archive of Munich. So this is actually, there has never been a better time to jump into silent films because there is just so much convenient free stuff available right now. Awesome. Great. Lauren, do you have any other places? Because I know you've mentioned a few sometimes. Uh, I mean, I, I do not have as, as like, complicated, uh, or as, as, not complicated, broad a relationship to silent films. Um, I, I do know that there are, there, they are definitely available on YouTube. Um, one of the issues that I always run into when it, when it comes to something like YouTube or, or other sort of, uh, streaming services like that is, is quality, um, picture quality. So I, I recently watched The Student of Prague, which I had seen clips of, but had never actually watched all the way through. And there are a couple of versions of it on, on YouTube. Unfortunately, the version that has the best picture quality has no subtitles for the German intertitles. So I'm like, I kind of <laughs> want to know what's happening at least the first time I watch this, and then maybe I could watch it again. Um, also, Canopy does have a, a good bit of... of Films. Again, it, it's always an open question about the quality of the films themselves, because some of them are just public domain prints that have been floating around anyways. And um, it can be very difficult to find something that is uh, high quality and, you know, really watchable. Um, Criterion Channel does does have a few things. I, I do think that um, a lot of the Oscar Michaud films 
and definitely a lot of the big ones are available right now on the Criterion channel, which is good. Um, so in order to sort of start off on some silent films, Criterion Channel and Canopy are very good places to go to, but it, it definitely seems like if you're really looking for uh, rarer films or lesser seen films that you need to kind of branch out a little bit more and dig around. Yeah. Yeah. And, oh, I forgot to mention also, uh, Denmark has put their entire film history library online. Oh. Yeah. So, I mean, wow. they just, Finland did too, actually. So if you want to get into more Northern European fare, it's there, it's free, and they look fantastic. The, the, the transfers are absolutely stunning. The Scandinavians, those are my people. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. We did have one other question that is completely uh, a different direction. So don't be... Don't be thrown by this has, question. This has nothing um, to do with silent film. Uh-oh. <laughs> nothing whatsoever, but we're going to throw it out anyway because this is current events of things that just happened. Yeah, so this is actually to do with um, something that came out this week that there will be a Scream 5. They're moving forward with that. So um, at Pause It's Paw was wondering, since there's going to be a new Scream movie, who would you cast as the final girl in this film? Um... I would love to see them go with someone who is not white. Um, I was thinking maybe like Lana Condor could be fun. I don't know. Um, Did you have any thoughts, Lauren? No. (laughs) I was actually, I've actually been trying to think about like, what can you possibly do in a new Scream movie that, that hasn't already been done. All I have to say is that I personally think that Nev Campbell should be the murderer in this one. Um, <laughs> she finally loses it and she, just kills everybody. Sydney's just like, you know what? I'm not going to be a fucking victim anymore. I'm going to kill everyone. <laughs> so that's my vote. Uh, I've got, I have no idea. I agree with you. It would be nice to have a not white girl. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, as as the final girl, but I mean, have we transcended the need for final girls? Is because uh, I mean, at a certain point, this this I know the Scream franchise is based in all of these horror tropes, but do we really have final well, girls anymore? Well, what's funny about the Scream franchise specifically is, yeah, we consider Sydney the final girl, but we forget that Gail and Dewey both survived all the films too. They're the final girl. <laughs> like, I mean. They're the yeah, they're all three the final girls. So yeah, I don't, I don't. I think that this franchise actually subverts that trope. So yeah. Um, Fritzy, did you have any thoughts? Uh, I I I'm afraid I'm an absolute coward about horror movies. <laughs> so that's okay. <laughs> I I am not good at any of that, and I'm completely clueless about anything in the modern world. Um, but I will say I'm going to put a shout out for Laura LaPlante, even though she's been dead for decades, because she's absolutely marvelous in silent horror and surviving all sorts of, you know, deranged killers in the canary and the last, the last warning. So that's my, that's my, um, my, um, cowardly wiggle out of that one answer. (laughs) I like it. I like it. The original final girl. No, I'm like, seriously, I think that we've moved past the need for final girls. So I I would hope that the Scream Mm -hmm. franchise would go in that direction as well. Yeah. So the other half of his question was, 
if a juvenile Oscar existed, who would have received it since 2010 until this past year's Oscars? Well, I think this year it definitely would have gone to Roman Griffin Davis, who should have been nominated for lead actor for Jojo Rabbit. Um, <laughs> yeah, I will die on that hill. Um, as far as others, I don't know, I need to look at the list, but did you have any that jumped to mind, Lauren? Again, no, I think that many of them are actually were nominated for, for, so people like, um, what's his face? The kid in room. Uh, yeah. Jacob Trombley. Yeah. Like, like they, things like that. But I, I can't think of the, the thing is, I think I do agree that there should be a juvenile Oscar simply because I think that it's unfair to put childhood performances into the same categories as uh, adult performances. Cause I think that they demand different things and, and also ultimately having children competing with grown up actors seems a little weird to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, I, I honestly like my, my care about the Oscars continues to decline. <laughs> <laughs> so I agree with you. I agree with you about Jojo Rabbit, but yeah. Uh, Otherwise, no, I don't I don't have a strong opinion. I would also throw in Amanda Stenberg from The Hate You Give, too, Ooh. which actually I would like to see her in the next screen as well. Just going to throw it out there. Um, yeah, other than that, I don't know. It's like, I don't, there's not a lot of child, perfor- the thing about child performances is that there aren't a lot that really stand out and the ones that do, we tend to talk about them. Yeah. Um, I don't, yeah. Well, and as you were saying about children competing with adults, some of the things they were saying about Kavanjane Wallace when she was nominated mm-hmm. were just cruel. Like they were saying yeah. that she hadn't earned it, that she was basically just coached entirely by the director and, you know, making fun of her name, you know, all the usual yeah. unpleasant stuff. And so I agree with you. I, I'm not sure that it's even fair to say that that a um, a child should be thrown into this. I don't think they deserve it because, frankly, I think they're the more mature ones usually. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, yeah. And, well, and when you're talking about, you know, whatever, an eight-year-old kid is like, oh, she was coached by the director. It's like, well, yeah, yes. Like, <laughs> what I do you think they do? That's I, how directing works. Yeah, also, you're just like, what do you think <laughs> acting is? They, that, that they just, like, recorded her behaving normally and were like, oh, she's brilliant. Like, what the hell? Yeah, it was yeah. ridiculous at the time. But, I mean, after I said I don't follow anything modern, I do hate read every year the inevitable and anonymous Oscar voter oh, interview yeah. where they say all these horrible things they know they can get away with because they are anonymous. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I stew for a while. I'll be like, see, this is what's wrong with everything. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and on the note of what you were just saying too, Lauren, like, um, with, well, they're just coaching the kids or whatever. Um, I remember when Brooklyn Prince was in the Florida project a couple of years ago and people were talking about whether she should be in the Oscar conversation and, even that one, I was a little bit like, she's really good in the movie, but she, they really did. Literally, the director even said that they a lot of times they just kind of turned the camera on the kids and let them do their own thing. So uh, it's kind of funny, but it really, there are certain kids that just have that something. Directors are able to spot that and pull it out um, just like they can with anybody else. And there are adult actors that 
doesn't matter how much you work with them, they're never going to get there. <laughs> like, it's just not going to happen. But, but yeah, I agree that I think putting kids in competition with adults, and just to your point too, Fritzy, I think it's really interesting to see how much more mature and level-headed children are so often than adults. I think one of the biggest surprises of my adult life was finding out that it's more junior high than junior high was. Yes. It's true. I'm like, <laughs> with some things, you're like, you you never got past that, really? I'm like, ah, darn it. Now I'm stuck here. Yeah. <laughs> this is just how it is now. Yep. So, well, is there anything else anybody wanted to mention or talk about before we close things up? As as per usual, watch more movies. Like this. Yep. This. This is our, like, constant refrain. Just, like, watch more movies of all types and genres and eras and, yeah. Yes. I, yes. Watch, watch more, um, watch more of everything because you wouldn't believe what National Archives have online. Just search for, just search for the, uh, the nation of choice and look for their National Archive and, Pretty much like 70 or 80 percent of them have a huge collection that's available online for free to watch. So you don't even have to spend money to do this. So there's no excuse. None. There's really no excuse. So thank you so much, Fritzy. It's been great having you here this week. We've really, I, I know I personally have benefited from it. So I'm really excited. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me. It was fun. Yeah. So um, we would also like to thank our patrons that help support the show. And those include Heather, Adriana, The Crooked Table Podcast, Michael, new, new patron Jacob, James, Katie, Cariata, Mason, Matthew, Monty, Nanina, Nicole, Robert, Sharon, Steve, Tao, and Will. So thank you all for supporting the show. If you would like to be among their number, you can find us on patreon.com slash citizendame. For as little as a dollar a month, you help us keep the lights on. And for three bucks, you get early access to episodes, um, bonus content when we have time to do it, um, <laughs> that kind of thing. Some fun stuff. We also have our Zazzle store. We do have masks in the Zazzle store, and we're going to add a couple more. Uh, so wear your fucking mask. That's going to be on a mask. <laughs> Zazzle.com slash Citizen Tame Pod. Um, and we also have our ko-fi which is ko-fi.com slash citizen name and there's lots of ways that you can find us we are on twitter and instagram at citizen dame pod occasionally we check in on facebook facebook.com slash citizen dame and we like mail so you can always drop us an email at or citizen dame pod at gmail.com which also is our website citizen dame pod.com there's a whole theme here uh, you can reach out to us individually too. Fritzy, where can people find you, follow you, read more of your work? Well, I'm on the web at moviesilently.com. I'm on Twitter at moviesilently. And those are the main two hubs. I have, I've played around with some other things, but those are the main places to find me. And I also occasionally guest on podcasts. And, but generally speaking, just look for me on Twitter. You seriously have the most informative and interesting Twitter threads, I think, of anybody that I follow. Yeah. I love, I really love reading what you put out there. It's so educational and, and interesting. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. Um, Lauren, where can people find you? I am on Twitter and Instagram at LH Business. 
And your Twitter threads are also very entertaining <laughs> for a completely different reason. Different focus. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I am on Twitter and Instagram at Karen M. Peterson. And thank you all so much for listening. We will catch you next time. Thank you.